Hi there, and welcome to our Hollowed Fruit Podcast. Here we will meet inspirational LGBTQIA persons whose journeys and practices illustrate the flowering and fertile possibilities for all of our souls. I'm Brian Anthos, a spiritual guide for pleasure and peace seekers. You can find out more about me at brianantos.com. Let's take a moment now to pause and find some quiet, and to consider again that we are a part of something larger than ourselves. As we begin, let us be at peace. Welcome to Episode 5 of Our Hollowed Fruit. Today's guest is Katie Kuntz-Wineland, a queer minister in search for more belonging. Hello world, hello universe, and welcome back to our Hollowed Fruit Podcast. I'm Brian Anthos, and I'm so excited that you dropped by today, and I can't wait for you to meet a very special guest, Katie Kuntz-Wineland. Katie, how are you? I'm fabulous. How are you, Brian? Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to share my story. Absolutely. So to the world out there, who is Katie? Katie is uh, many things. Uh, To begin with, a marketing coordinator at Bittersweet Farms, a nonprofit organization serving adults with autism. Katie recently began a venture that we'll spend quite a bit of time on today called The Belonging Table. Katie is a queer, seminary-educated, independent, post-institutional minister, and she founded The Belonging Table, a virtual Christian Plus community of practice. Katie is also a vegan cook. You might find her visiting many local coffee shops in her hometown in Toledo. She loves cuddling with her rescue beagle, Zoe Grace. Loves hiking and running, just to name a few things about who she is. And I'll be quiet now. Let's meet Katie. Hey, Brian, I'm so glad to be here. And thanks for featuring the belonging table in your work. Absolutely. I'm just so thrilled to learn more about it myself and for anyone out there to learn more and to hopefully join you and participate too. And so maybe if to begin, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a bit about what is the belonging table, how did it come to be? I know a little bit enough to know that it's a pretty powerful story and something very recent. Yeah, absolutely. So the belonging table, as Brian said, is a virtual Christian plus community of practice. And I love to say that it is a drop in pop up spiritual space. And um, a lot of the folks who have found belonging in that space are people like me, who are queer people of faith, and also people like me who have been through the journey of deconstructing the faith that they grew up in and really working to build and reconstruct something new. So we like to say that we offer the sacrament of belonging in everything that we do. And um, those are just some of the people who have found belonging in this space. Um, So each month we offer two virtual gatherings. The first one is a queer-led communion gathering, which is rooted in the Christian tradition, very broadly defined. 
And the second gathering features another spiritual practice. So we had a creativity gathering, we've had a mindful writing gathering, and just last month we had a building your own spiritual toolbox gathering where um, I partnered with House of Our Queer from Instagram and we talked about what it looks like to build a queer um, or interfaith spiritual practice. So that was awesome. Wow, there's just so much going on. It's amazing. It really is. And um, I I founded the Belonging Table back in October and originally just started offering it as a space to um, the folks who were in my network. So my Facebook friends um, and other professional connections that I had. And at the beginning of this year, so January 1st of 2020, I launched it um, publicly into the world. And it has been amazing in just over three months. Um, how much growth that we have had, how many folks we have following along, um, how many different people have dropped in uh, to practice spirituality with us in really creative ways. And it's been amazing. What role, if any, did the pandemic play in the creation of this, any of the messages behind it, or even the sort of your timeline of creation? If this pandemic would not have happened, it's hard for me to imagine that the belonging table would exist. Um, That might sound like an extreme statement, but it could not be more true. So um, in January of 2020, I left um, once and for all the church of my childhood, which was the United Methodist Church. And as I stepped out of that denomination for several reasons, um, I found myself uh, wondering whether I might find belonging spiritually outside of institutions for the first time in my life. Um, However, I had a relationship at the time, and I still have meaningful connection with an Episcopal congregation here in Toledo. And um, they uh, were kind of like the last stop on the train to my post-institutional ministry. So uh, as humans, we love to cling to what is familiar. And for me, what was familiar was uh, institutional, traditional Christianity um, and denominational belonging and Protestant religion and, and all of these many things. And so I had already connected with this Episcopal church before I left the United Methodist Church. And so I was attending there. And in early 2020, I, I loved it. And I was really thinking about membership. Um, and ministry even, ordained ministry in the Episcopal Church. So it was a a very serious time of discernment for me. And then, of course, in March of 2020, literally everything changed. And um, when that happened, the Episcopal Church, as they transitioned from in-person worship in their buildings um, into a safer virtual worship context, Um, One of the things that happened was they uh, shut down the Eucharist. They did not permit virtual practice of the Sacrament of Eucharist. And um, that was really, really hard for me because one of the things that I had loved the very most about the Episcopal tradition was how central the Eucharist, um, or as I would call it, communion, was to worship and faith and community. And then suddenly, when I felt like I and we needed it most, it was gone. And I mean, I spent weeks and months wrestling with that, crying over that, uh, struggling over that. And ultimately, 
it helped me to see that that was not a tradition where I was going to find the belonging that I was seeking. Um, that was, you know, a space that even though they value Eucharist immensely, just like I value Eucharist and communion immensely, um, we value it differently. And so it, it wasn't a space that I was going to pursue ministry. And I just began um kind of thinking about, well, what is next? If this sort of last frontier where I felt like I might actually fit uh, is not a space where I feel I can minister in authenticity, then how do I move forward from from this space as someone who um, is seminary educated, who has been pursuing a call to ministry for over a decade, and who has gifts to offer the world? And that, that was when I sat down with a circle of my mentors and began discerning what it would look like for me to uh, responsibly and faithfully offer my gifts and my ministry to the world um, outside of and beyond the boxes and the buildings of traditional institutional religion. And it was out of those conversations, uh, very intentional discernment circles, um, that I received the blessing um, to the blessing from my elders and my mentors and my healers to really step out in faith and found the belonging table. And so, um, you know, that was sort of my journey from March to October when I began offering belonging table gatherings to my circle um, and then eventually feeling called and ready and prepared to offer that to the world the beginning of this year in 2021. That is a journey. (laughs) Uh, And there's so much to unpack there. I'm curious about a phrase you used um, early on in what you just shared, sort of this idea of shutting down the Eucharist. But I think before we even go there, what is your definition of Eucharist or communion, as you say? What does that look like for you? What is your experience of communion? How do you describe that to people? Why is it important to you? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So for me, uh, the textbook definition in the tradition that uh, formed me is that communion or Eucharist is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so it, you know, I'll rephrase that. It's something tangible that we can taste um, and we can feel and we can hold in our hands and we can take within ourselves um, that represents the ways that God um, and God's grace can meet us where we are and can come into our hearts um, and can transform us from the inside out. Um, And so it it is a ritual, it is a sacrament where we remember that. And of course, it is also a remembrance of Christ's death um, and resurrection. It is a remembrance of the Last Supper um, that Jesus shared with his disciples. Um, For me, it's a a remembrance of the, the very human Jesus who, who shared that final meal with the ones that he loved the very most and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to eat this again, Earthside, but, but you will. Mm. And so I beg you, remember me. Um, so it, it's that commandment that really is at the center of communion. And I mean, in addition to all that theology, right, we could talk about theology all day long. <laughs> um, communion is important to me because on my spiritual journey, it has been um, a real identity marker around my Christian faith. 
So communion was something that I grew up with, was very important to me growing up as a child, um, as a teen, as a young adult. And then when I reached the point where I was really deconstructing my Christian faith and um, stepping out of Christian identity for a season, which lasted about three or four years for me, um, one of the most tangible ways that I took off that Christian identity um, was by ceasing um, receiving the Eucharist. So I, I actually stopped taking communion for that period of about three years. And um, it, it was immensely meaningful to me um, at that time to not receive communion. Um, and then when I reached the space where I was reconstructing that Christian faith and reconciling with my Christian faith, um, I knew that in my heart that reconciliation was complete when I received communion again, when I made that choice, the conscious choice to receive that gift again. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I chose to make communion uh, a central facet and a central practice um, at Belonging Table because it is a space where we have folks who are deeply Christian, we have folks who are ex-Christian, we have folks who don't know where they fall on that spectrum, um, and all of that is welcome and wanted. And um, communion is something that gives us the chance to experiment a little bit with, with the tangible um, and communal aspect of Christian faith. And for us at Belonging Table, we are pretty intentional about the fact that if someone shows up for one of our communion gatherings, there is zero assumption that they're going to receive the elements. We make a very intentional choice to be a space where people are welcome um, to simply be present with us if they would like to just observe communion or if they don't know if they're ready but they might be by the time we receive the elements um, and so you know it, it is not one of those spaces where like at a traditional church you might feel that pressure like oh no I'm going to be the one who doesn't get up from the pew you know when the time comes right, um, right. yeah and so it it's been a gift to make that journey around like what does it look like to create a communion table and a communion experience um, that is consent-based and totally non-coercive and like honors any level of participation. That's been really awesome work. I love the focus of consciousness and choice. And I would also add maybe desire and being aware of what is our desire? What is our choice? And how do we bring consciousness to any part of our spiritual life, any part of any religious journey too, that it's not just something we do, it's not just something we're told to do, but it becomes a choice. And there, it seems like, at least in your own journey, there's a lot of power in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you talk about desire and consent and choice, I mean, it's a powerful parallel to think about all the lessons that we have learned as a culture. Hopefully we are learning as a culture around consent and sexuality. And um, there, there are powerful parallels between that and what I think is a healthy spiritual space, right? Because you enter a, a sexual encounter and there, there should not be an assumption that, you know, your yes is a blanket yes all day long, right? Um, you have to check right. in. And that, I think that is exactly the same in a spiritual space that throughout our time together, we're offering different um, options for meaningful participation, options for opting out if folks aren't comfortable, um, and, and just honoring people where they are. I think that is huge. And it's something that the church, um, the church institutional has not 
always taught us positive lessons in. And then in juxtaposition to that choice and consent is this phrase you mentioned earlier of shutting down communion. How does one shut down communion? I'm imagining sort of like sirens and break the glass and pull the levers. Uh, how does one shut down communion? And how did that happen? How did you feel? And, and how did that, what role did that play in this journey for you? I felt completely caught off guard by it because at the time I felt like I had found a community um, that valued this as much as I did and also in all the same ways that I did and um, that had the same heart around offering the Eucharist that I did. And um, I, I had found like such meaning and connection in that space that when, um, you know, suddenly the entire world became terrifying and dangerous um, and I was grasping for that familiarity in my community of faith and um, it just wasn't there. And I remember being baffled as I watched all of it unfold because it wasn't, you know, as much as you say uh, you're imagining sirens and uh, chains or, you know, something <laughs> dramatic, it really wasn't dramatic. Um, it started for the first three weeks of the pandemic um, the church that I was attending offered Eucharist um, in the sanctuary. So the priest blessed the Eucharist and the priest received the Eucharist, but the priest and the choir were the only people in the sanctuary. So it was virtual. Um, and I and others at home were invited to like spiritually partake in the Eucharist. And um, at the time, I you know, was terrified. It was the beginning of the pandemic and I was seeking comfort in, in my community of faith in any way that I could. So I tried to be open and, and I remember like imagining, okay, from where I am, um, the elements are three miles northwest. Or, you know, I remember like thinking all of this in my head and, you know, praying and, and watching and observing and um, just really trying to engage that and spiritually receive the Eucharist. So that was three weeks. Um, and then after the third week, the congregation decided that it was not safe um, for anyone to gather in the sanctuary, rightly so. And they took worship basically into the priest's home. And ever since then, um, she has mostly been offering um you know, the service, it's, it, it's usually just called Eucharist in the Episcopal Church. I think they call it morning devotions now because they can't call it Eucharist. Um, right. And so they've been offering that, you know, from their different home spaces, recording just like we are in, in different spaces and, and offering that. Um, and I remember wondering, will they offer the Eucharist? And then it didn't happen that fourth week. And then it never happened again. Um, and, and I had honest, um, for me, heart-wrenching conversations with the priest about the why behind all of that. I did um, like hours of internet research. It became my obsession, like why is Eucharist not happening in the Episcopal Church? I did so much research about this. Um, and I just, I needed it to understand why. And so in that tradition, um, the rubrics of their faith dictate that the Eucharist, um, the elements have to be blessed within a certain geographical distance 
um, of the consecrated altar, which is an altar that's been consecrated by a bishop and is in the church building. So when they left the church building, they could no longer have a valid Eucharist. Um, and, and that's also the reason why virtual consecration wasn't an option there. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a heart-wrenching journey. It was a confusing journey. It was a slow unfold. I mean, and honestly, for me, it was such a parallel with the way that information was coming out about COVID as well. Sure. Because it was like every day, you know, we were learning something new about how, you know, to prevent COVID, how, you know, we were learning so much about the different health and safety measures. There, there were different, you know, requirements from our state coming out. Um, and looking back, it can feel like it was a, a quick, you know, deluge of change, but it was really a slow roll. And it was a similar kind of journey with the, the Eucharist being, you know, shut down at that time. I think too of, you know, from your definitions earlier of what is communion to you. And I think of all those wonderful ideas you shared. And I think about the time we were going through collectively, just as a general people and the things we were faced and the fears and the anxieties and the, as you said, just the sheer terror sometimes. It seems like, again, from your definitions, that this experience of communion for those that that means something to uh, this would be the moment for it. Yeah. And instead, it continued to get put behind more and more gates. It's already behind many rules and gates, if you will. And it seems like it just got thrown deeper into the closet and smaller in a time where, again, for those that this means a lot to, could have been a central, central point of connection to God. Yeah, totally. There, there was one bishop who actually authorized the virtual consecration of the Eucharistic elements in the Episcopal Church, and that authorization lasted about 24 hours before the presiding bishop stepped in um, and said, this is not a valid sacrament and this practice cannot move forward. Um, and so there was in the Episcopal Church this push and pull between, um, you know, what I would say are forces seeking to you know, spread the nourishment of Eucharist at a time when people are so hungry and afraid and forces that, you know, maybe they desired to nourish people and they were indeed nourishing people in manifold other ways. I, I'm not ever going to deny that. Um, but this particular kind of nourishment that is held as the central act of Christian worship in that tradition was withheld. Um, as long as people could not be in church buildings. And um, yeah, I mean, I learned through that experience, like, you know, I've talked about how I thought that in the Episcopal Church, I had found a community that valued Eucharist or communion in the same way that I did. And um, at first, when I was angry and scared and disappointed and like hurt again by the church, um, it was very hard for me to see that distinction because it felt like uh, these people just don't care. But actually, they just care differently than I care. Uh, you know, if, if it were up to me, I would be throwing Eucharist and communion to anyone and everyone in the street, which is basically what I'm doing with Belonging Table. Um, and, and that to me feels faithful and holy and nourishing um, and good 
But there is something to say about, you know, a kind of valuing of Eucharist that, that cares so deeply about the tradition. Um, and, and, you know, in the Episcopal Church, they care so deeply about apostolic succession and, and consecration and, and all of these theological pieces that, you know, it's not that they don't value it or they don't care about it. They're just not a fling it to the masses type of folks. And I found through COVID that that's the type of person I am. So, I mean, that's a huge <laughs> gift. <laughs> it's like a whole nother coming out for you. Yeah. 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 I, there's so much connection for me too, as you share this, I think about my own studies of the early Christian church that was very much in people's homes. That's all that it was. There were no church buildings. There were no rubrics and guides and fancy books with ribbons to flip through of what to say on what day and in what moment. And as you keep saying, like the rules and what's valid and the early church was very much what you said was let's gather and let's fling this to the masses because we know this is good. Right. And we want, we want more. So curious, you know, we could probably do a whole nother podcast on this, but how do we recapture some of that early church? Not only energy, but just that openness to what's possible and, and not get so caught up in this, the institutionalism of it all, of what it's become for so many groups of Christians. Oh, amen to that. Uh, I Yeah, we could do a whole other podcast just on this. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the First Communion um, was the Last Supper, right? The First Communion, the Last Supper, it's all the same thing. <laughs> and um, it was a Passover meal, right? right. So it, it was a Passover meal that happened in an upstairs room in a home. Sure. Um, and so the, the roots of communion um, are, are in home ritual, and so it, it has been a gift for, for the many traditions and, and even institutional churches that have been offering virtual consecration of communion. Um, I think it's been a gift and a remembering and a relearning of what it means to, to offer sacrament in the space that where we spend the most time, which is our home. Um, and for us at Belonging Table, I can't imagine that communion is ever going to happen anywhere but our homes because we have folks so far in three countries who are a part of this community. And so, you know, we're not going to go back to the building or back to in-person after COVID. It's just not possible for us. And so um, it, it has been a gift to just ask folks and invite folks to gather whatever elements they have on hand. Um, I always say, you know, bread or crackers um, and wine or juice, that's traditional, but whatever you have on hand and whatever is meaningful to you is just perfect for God. Um, God doesn't care, I don't believe, uh, what we're actually eating. God cares that we are, are doing it reverently, that we are doing it um, in an effort to connect with the divine and with ourselves and to take in the grace of God and meet God, right? Yeah. So it's, it's been a gift um, to do that work. And then to have the community gather on Zoom and um, at Belonging Table, we actually bless the communion elements together. So this is another way that we have shattered um, the tradition of institutional religion. Um, and that was an intentional decision for me because I, I have created this thing from the ground up. If I wanted to be the only person blessing the communion, I, I suppose I could have been. Um, but when everything 
unfolded with the Episcopal Church. And um, when I chose not to move forward with joining that tradition, um, I had to sit back and ask myself, what do I really think deep down? What do I really believe deep down? Independent of, you know, a structure that I'm trying to fit within. What do I believe about this? Um, and, and I reached a place where I said to myself, um, and I, I prayed deeply about it, um, I said to myself, you know what? I'm not the only person who's capable of blessing these elements. Nobody needed to go to school for three years like I did and get a master's degree um, to bless these elements. If I don't need the permission of a governing church in order to bless them, then if someone is here with us, Sure. I mean, what was St. Paul's qualifications? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, we we are just thinking outside of the box with all of this, but it, it's been amazing. Um, this has not just been a journey of me finding freedom and authenticity, but also like offering that to everyone else who comes into the space and saying, you know, I'm not just here to tell you that you are beloved by God as a queer person or as a person who is questioning everything you ever knew about your faith. I am actually here to tell you that you are um, worthy and holy and beautiful and wonderful um, and fully capable of laying your hands on the elements before you and holding out your hands towards this webcam um, and blessing this communion, in this community together. So it, it's just been amazing and powerful to see what has come of that. Yeah, powerful comes to mind for me too as you share that. And again, I, I keep going back to just consciousness that we said earlier. You know, when you talk about God doesn't care if cracker, bread, whatever you have on hand, it's about that act. It's about the reverence. It's about that connection. And so for me, that goes back to just that consciousness and that always for me is you can't ever know what's going on inside someone. We don't know the interior of the person next to us. And so who are we to judge what kind of connection and, and emotional, spiritual space that they're in, right? So very powerful. Thank you for that. We'll move on here to a different topic. What is it like to be a queer minister? Honestly, Brian, I've never been any other kind of minister, uh, so it, it's kind of hard to say, but um, I, I think it's been a struggle. It's been really hard because I have come up against so many locked doors um, and not even just locked, chained shut, uh, you know, electric fence surrounding the door. Uh, it, it has been very, very hard because so much of my journey was spent really trying to break in to the religious tradition that I grew up in and um, the, that faith tradition that I still so value, which is the United Methodist Church. And, you know, I spent years um, advocating for full inclusion of queer folks in that space as a seminary-educated layperson, Mm. which was, you know, a, a difficult space to be. And technically, right, no denomination has signed off and said, you know, this person is a minister. I have stepped out um, in, in faith with the power of the Holy Spirit to, to call myself a minister and to live into that and begin offering that to the world. Um, 
but I feel like a minister in a way that I didn't when I was banging my head against that wall, trying to find a place for myself and others in a tradition that just would not open the doors. Um, and so it's it's been a struggle. There have been really hard years. There has been trauma upon trauma in so many ways. Um, and there has been hard work to heal that and process that to get to where I am now. Um, and now, like, you know, I can't, I can't not acknowledge how hard it's been to be a queer minister, but, but now like it's pure gift. It's pure gift, Brian. Like it, it's been incredible because my willingness to be my full self and, um, to stand on this sacred, holy, solid ground and say, um, I don't need the permission of the church to answer my call to ministry, even if the journey started there. Um, and I am a beloved child of God. And all the other queer people out there are <laughs> beloved children of God. Um, and, and God loves us and Christ loves us. And um, there is, there's power in that because... You know, I, I have queer youth reaching out to me. I have queer people reaching out to me of all ages um, and coming to me because they, too, have beat their head against the wall for too long. Um, and they, too, have been harmed and they, too, have had trauma. And now, as someone who has slogged through all of that mess, I am able, finally, I mean, it kind of feels like finally, um, yeah. to, to reach out and offer healing and grace and sacrament and belonging and love and, and all of those gifts of God. And so what does that look like? Maybe give us a little taste of a conversation and to anyone listening who might deep down inside want to feel that belonging or that belovedness, just not quite there for many reasons, probably. What, what do you start to say to someone like that? I find myself saying all the time in this ministry, you are not alone, mm. which I think is one of our basic human needs. And I have found that my journey as a queer person who has been oppressed and excluded in the church and my journey as one who has questioned and deconstructed my faith um, that I'm able to say you are not alone and it's not just a line of bullshit. <laughs> like I have literally been um, where many of the folks are who are reaching out to me. And so I, I start often with you are not alone. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of question. It's a lot of deep listening. Um, I find myself surprised by how many folks reach out directly you know, will DM me on Instagram, send me an email, these kinds of things, and pour out their hearts and their souls, and then apologize and say, I'm so sorry for taking your time. And I mean, I, I'm always stunned by that, because I find it to be such a gift to hold space for people and, and to listen to their stories and meet them where they are and start to unpack the questions that they have. And, um, you know, th there are people there, there's, you know, queer youth who will message me and just say, you know, I can't find justification in scripture that says that it's okay for me to be queer. Can you help? Mm. Um, and so sometimes it's like as simple as finding 
articles online, which are really easy for me to find because I have all the education and background and I've like worked through the emotional baggage of that um, to be able to find those things and share those things. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And sometimes it's a lot harder than that and a lot deeper than that. But yeah, yeah. I I get often, uh, you probably think I'm crazy you know, from, from clients or people reaching out interested in working with me. And it's a common, common mantra. You probably think I'm crazy. Yeah. And that's what the world has taught us. It, what it, it is what is ingrained in us for a multitude of reasons and ideas and situations. This idea that we're, there's something wrong with us. Yes. You know, versus finding a way to embrace ourselves first and embracing the divine within us mm-hmm. and embracing that connection to whatever that something else is that we might want to connect with and to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've received messages about like how much it means to folks that we're trying to do spirituality in a non-coercive way. We have like a participation guide for communion that goes like step-by-step through what people will experience so they know what to expect. And I've received messages where folks say, I have never taken communion, but I feel drawn to. And because you've offered this, I feel safe, Mm. um, you know, taking that step. And the same with like our Christian plus uh, name, which I know is kind of unique. It, It really is something that was just given to me by spirit as I was dreaming and visioning about belonging table. And, um, Christian plus simply means we're rooted in the Christian faith, but you don't have to in order to belong with us. And also, we value many traditions and practices that are far beyond the bounds of traditional Christianity. And so I've received messages about that, too. Like, what does this mean? Or... Um, you know, one person just got it. Like, I'm surprised by how many people just get it intuitively. I've received those messages too, where they're like, this is brilliant. Um, This is so helpful. I used to be (laughs) Christian. I'm not sure if I'm going to be in the future. And like, just the space to say plus. I mean, it's like LGBTQ plus, right? It just has that space to say, like, if you don't quite fit into like what you see on the page, we haven't really forgotten you. That's right. And and also, I mean, we have Disney Plus. There's Power Mount Plus now. So why not Christian Plus with Katie? I mean, uh, totally. I'm absolutely. here for it. Yeah. Yeah. So Katie, always there's a moment here on our hollowed fruit where we ask our guests to share a bit about a spiritual practice that's important to you, just to give some ideas for everyone that listens out there as well. I thought long and hard about this because I knew that you would ask, and I'm actually going to queer the question if that's okay. Sure, always. Awesome. Um, So for me, there is no one spiritual practice that is important to me. And I actually spent, you know, just like the people going on Instagram and saying, hey, Brian, you might think I'm crazy. Um, I spent a long time wondering if there was something wrong with me because I could never find that single spiritual practice to devote my life to every single day. Um, And for me, it it really is like this cross-pollination of a variety of practices. So I just want to share a little bit about some of the different practices that I um, cross-pollinate on a daily basis. Um, because oh, I see. This is a really fancy way to share many spiritual practices. Yeah, because I, I don't see. have one favorite. Um, 
And I mean, part of the point too is that these are not practices that are typically found together, um, embodied mm. by the same person. So that's another yeah. reason that I wanted to. to I love take it. This Let's route. hear them. Yes. Yeah, so. On a typical morning, you might find me running or walking on my treadmill and listening to Christian contemporary worship music, which is one of my primary spiritual practices. Um, I prefer the kind with good theology, but uh, I can't say I'm exclusive. Uh, It's kind of embarrassing. There's some dirty ones in there. There are a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as I listen to a few of those songs, I often switch over to astrology videos on YouTube um, or tarot card readings on YouTube because I'm very connected to astrology. Um, I don't practice tarot myself, but I do listen to readings. Um, And I personally read oracle cards. That has been a significant connection for me. Um, So that's kind of like my morning practice is kind of a combination of all of those things. So Christian worship music, um, listening to astrology, listening to um, like tarot card readings, maybe doing an oracle reading for myself. I also work a lot with healing crystals and crystal meditation, um, writing is a major spiritual practice for me. So, I mean, as you can see, like when we did this building your own spiritual toolbox workshop recently for belonging table, um, I have like a really heavy toolbox and um, I'd be happy to talk a little bit more about any of those if you're curious, but I just kind of wanted to say um, for folks who maybe don't just have one thing and for folks who are perhaps Christian plus and just didn't have a name for it and are, are queering that binary and saying, yeah, I love worship music. I love my scripture. Um, and I love my oracle cards or my astrology or my crystals. Like you don't have to keep all those things separate. You really can um, cross pollinate. You can meld those things together in a beautiful mix. It's wonderful. And, you know, I, I, I jest earlier about all your multiple ideas, but in all seriousness, it is a wonderful point to make that, you know, even those of us that might want to say like, oh, I do this one thing every day. We all know that's really hard to do something every day or every hour, or every other day, whatever we say. So to your point, to have this toolbox or this sort of bag of tricks, this lots of things to consider, no matter what's going on in our life that might pull us away from our practices, there's something there to grab onto. And I, I really love that. And and I'm with you, too, in, in, in so much of that. And I even think about, like, working out. You know, sometimes I'm working out and I like to listen to Broadway music. I mean, how many people do that? You know, maybe if we talk about it more, we'll, I'll find more of me out there. Or, I mean, other days it might be, like, the workout mix, right? But some days I want to work out to, like, Dear Evan Hansen. I'm just saying uh, Defying Gravity from Wicked is one of my favorite (laughs) workout songs. Uh, So you're not alone in that. But um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, in in all seriousness, I think those of us who are holding space spiritually for folks, um, we see the ways that some of the expectations that you'll, yeah, you'll just have one spiritual practice and you must do it every day can actually do harm to people. Um, and if it works for you, that's amazing, right? Like I celebrate that for folks, but yeah, having multiple, it, it does, it gives you 
lots of space to fall back on if something changes. And for me, it just honors the way that the journey um, weaves together in complex ways. And, you know, one day it may be all worship music. One day it may be, I just want to sit down and read from the Gospel of John. Um, and one day it may be running outside, right? Like, and, and yes, I do things every day to ground myself spiritually, but um, just having that choice and honoring the ways that it waxes and wanes through the seasons has been um, something, frankly, that my spiritual director has like immensely supported me in reaching mm -hmm. a space where I can celebrate it and not feel like I'm somehow lacking because yep. I don't meditate every day for 30 minutes like the people on Instagram right. say they do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. And so I guess for anyone looking for the summary version of Katie's spiritual practice is have many spiritual practices. Yeah. It's a, really a practice unto itself. So Yeah, and don't be afraid to experiment. Have fun with it. Thanks for taking that question to a whole new level today. Awesome. Uh, we always, towards the end of our time here on our hollowed fruit um, like to end with a little joy and gratitude. So for the joy, I get to ask some fun questions that you have no idea what's coming. Ah. So Katie, if I were to show up to Toledo tonight, and I'm not, that would be kind of creepy too. <laughs> but if, if I did show up like with notice a little bit, what would you cook for me in your vegan kitchen? Oh my gosh, Brian, I would cook for you Buffalo cauliflower tacos. Oh, that sounds amazing. They're delicious. So you start with a, a flame broiled corn tortilla. I usually set off the smoke detector, to be honest with you. Um, and then we roast the cauliflower with uh, buffalo red hot sauce, olive oil, garlic, onion, salt, pepper. Mm. It's delicious. Um, we make a vegan ranch with vegan mayo that is delicious. And I have to give full credit, my sweet wife, Beth, uh, she's actually a professional vegan chef and uh, she's all about the vegan ranch. I don't make it, that is her specialty. Um, so you drizzle that on there and we like to top it with some chopped cilantro. So that's what we would be having tonight if you drop by. Oh my goodness. I Hold on, I'm over here looking up flights to Toledo. Uh, is there an airport in Toledo? Yeah, there is, but it's <laughs> tiny. Detroit's only an hour, though. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay, I'll let you know. So your dog, if your dog were a cartoon character who can speak, what would that look like? Oh, my gosh. I feel like she's like a tigger, like real <laughs> bouncy, real full of energy. Uh, I'm not so sure that she would talk like Tigger, but she's actually 13. And when we adopted her, her name was Mabel. She was eight years old and they billed her as this little senior rescue beagle. It sounded <laughs> like she was going to come home and just knit on our couch and sleep all day long. <laughs> and um, she is actually sleeping right now. Thank God. But um, it, it's a rare occasion that she's sleeping in quiet. This dog is full of energy. She loves to go on like a five mile hike with us. Um, wow. She can jump like as high as my waist and she's a little 22 pound beagle. Oh, um, she, yeah, she is full of energy and life. And uh, I'm sure if she were talking, I don't know if she'd sound like Tigger, but she would definitely say something spunky and probably a little disrespectful, to be honest. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I love the image of your dog bouncing like Tigger. So that's wonderful. Yeah, she's so cute. And as we close out here, the idea of gratitude, and if there's anything you would like to share in these final moments of your own gratitude. I have to say, after having this conversation, I feel renewed gratitude for the journey, um, Mm. even for the really hard parts of it. And especially for the people who have been there um, by my side throughout the journey and encouraging me to just keep going. Um, And I also feel really grateful for the people who have found me and um, have found this ministry, who have found the belonging table. And um, not only that they found me, but that total strangers on the internet uh, have trusted me a total stranger on the internet with (laughs) so much of their hearts and their souls and their lives. Um, It it, it has just been a pure gift and um, it it would not be possible if it were not for the journey to get here. Well, and thank you for everything that you're doing and, and helping to create so much creation, spaces and ideas and events, just places for people to connect and to belong. Yeah, we all we all need it. I remember the first time I saw the belonging table when you put it out there, and I knew exactly what you were talking about. And so I appreciate that. It's been wonderful getting to know you and your work and your ministry, and I look forward to so much more together. And thank you again for spending some time here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for the many spaces that you're creating as well. It's It's been amazing to partner with you in this work. Thank you. Thank you. So if people would like to get in touch with you, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? I would love to hear from you. Um, So you can find me on Instagram at the belonging table and you're welcome to slide into my DM and uh, introduce (laughs) yourself anytime you want. uh, And don't worry, share as much as you want. And uh, I will be really, really happy to hold space and, and get to know you. And you can also find me at my website, which is www.katiekw.com, K-A-T-I-E-K-W.com. And there's a form on there to contact me um, as well. And I think that Brian will drop my email address in the description of the podcast as well, if, if email is best for you. Yeah, we'll be sure to include the extra contact info. And again, I am Brian Anthos, and you can always find me at brianantos.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-A-N-T-H-O-S.com. Thank you to everyone out there who has taken some moments to listen today, to journey with us on a piece of our journeys and a piece of journey with you. And we hope that you'll drop by again very soon. So long. So long.